Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Rodney Ross, author of Harrisburg in World War II. Rodney Ross, author of Harrisburg in World War II. If you were to walk around in Harrisburg in, say, 1944, would you have seen things that made it clear to you that there was a war on? Yes, definitely. Uh, you could see it from the booths that were established by um, Traveler's Aid, which... Um, was part of the USO, the United uh, Service Organizations that service troops. You would see it in soldiers and sailors walking about the streets of Harrisburg. You see it in ads uh, as far as the uh, department stores were concerned, like Pomeroy's, Bowman's, other department stores. You would see it also on the marquees uh, of the theaters, uh, the Colonial Theater on Market Street, the Lowe's on Market Street. Uh, on Market Square, the Senate, uh, the State Street, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, Locust Street uh, State Theater, as well as the Real and Walnut Street, they would, of course, have the marquees, uh, war movies that would give it away. In many cases, there also could be, you know, bond drives taking place where there might be some display on the square, uh, like a captured Japanese submarine or possibly... Uh, a fighter aircraft of some type, uh, you know, uh, just to get people, you know, enthusiastic and stirred up and contribute. But, but yeah, you know, the atmosphere was different, and the appearance of Harrisburg was also an awful lot different. Uh, and, of course, so the traffic was very, very heavy. People moving in and out of Harrisburg, uh, like West Shore folks going to Middletown, going to Harrisburg, East Shore folks. Uh, getting on the bus at the square or going to the West Shore, maybe to work at New Cumberland or, or maybe Carlisle or maybe Mechanicsburg. But yes, there was a different kind of like atmosphere and different appearance as far as Harrisburg itself was concerned, definitely. You said you'd see a lot of soldiers and sailors walking around. What would soldiers and sailors be doing in Harrisburg? Well, many of them would be there uh, because they, you know, weren't, you know, of working, you know, or at their base, or if they weren't, you know, sent to some other base or sent abroad or whatever, uh, they they could be on leave like sailors, could be on furlough like soldiers, uh, just enjoying themselves, uh, socializing. Uh, you know, uh, many would go to places like the Y. There were USO centers for them to go to, to enjoy uh, recreation, entertainment, uh, all kinds of services. But uh, Harrisburg was surrounded by military installations. Indian Town Gap with these soldiers in the Harrisburg. Uh, at the same time, uh, Middletown, the air base down there would feed, of course, uh, uniformed personnel into Harrisburg. At the same time, they came from New uh, Cumberland Reception Center, also come in from um, Carlisle, and uh, also from Mechanicsburg. 
Hey, um, in many cases, they were just, like I said, seeking to enjoy themselves. A, a major problem that the soldiers had during Sunday, by law, uh, the movie theaters weren't open. And that became a major issue that I deal with in the book. Uh, some argued, hey, open the theaters for soldiers. Others argued, you'll keep them closed. But uh, that became, what are they going to do? And of course, uh, they were actually looking for uh, girls, socialized companionship. And many, of course, would take these young ladies into Reservoir Park or on Riverfront or other places, you know. And unfortunately, Reservoir Park gained quite a reputation for things I can't mention, you know, that were taking place at this time. But I think because so many bases were in the area, this fed, of course, train station too. Soldiers passing through Harrisburg, in many cases, to go up the trains and might have been seeking recreation, might have decided to go to a movie, you know, a restaurant, a bar for a drink or whatever, you know. But it was like a garrison town, Harrisburg, really like a garrison town. Was, was the naval base here then? Uh, Mechanicsburg uh, was a naval uh, installation, right. People yeah. might be surprised to learn that the Mechanicsburg, this far inland, had a naval installation. Yeah. What was it yeah, doing? That was naval. Of course, Middletown was here. Of course, Indiantown Gap, the 28th Division was out there. And then you had what the War College at Carlisle. And then for the recruits, uh, the draftees, uh, Newcomer Reception Center. But uh, like I said, all these installations were pumping with activity. Energetic activity, you know, in that year 1944, you know, that you mentioned. Now, I will mention 1944. Uh, I noticed about 1943, and this was a common word that was used at the time, a slacking off of enthusiasm to support the war, the part of many Harrisburgers. And I am kind of convinced from what I, you know, the research I did and the writing I did, that maybe Harrisburgers thought that at that particular point in time, um, the tide had turned, uh, the Allies had the strategic advantage. I mean, Stalingrad had occurred in Eastern Europe. Uh, the Red Army pushed the German Army back at Stalingrad in 42 and 43. Allies landed in North Africa and chased the Italians and Germans out of Tunisia by 1943. Allies landed in Sicily, and then late in 43, we landed in Italy. But uh, Harrisburg was aware of what was taking place in the battlefields abroad. And like I said, I think maybe that cut into their enthusiasm and their willingness to make sacrifices and volunteer and get involved. So were there uh, deprivations that people had to put up with over the war years, like rationing and shortages that you said by 1944 they were kind of getting tired of them? Well, uh, there were deprivations. Uh, there was rationing because goods were scarce, uh, rationing concerning uh, such things as gasoline and uh, rubber, meaning tires, mobiles, and uh, rationing concerning sugar and uh, stoves, believe it or not, uh, and uh, automobiles, but there was rationing, and of course that caused some inconvenience. And I would probably say deprivation was probably, um, well, a term I wouldn't use. 
because I don't really feel that people were put out. In fact, uh, I mentioned someplace in the book that most Harrisburgers admitted the fact that they were a little inconvenienced by the war itself. And uh, I guess unless you had someone in the military, uh, like, you know, you were a mulletless son abroad or uh, possibly, you know, you had a brother abroad or a husband or something like that, uh, you could probably, I wouldn't say coast to the war years, but go to the war years and, like I said, be very little, you know, deprived. But there were some inconveniences. And uh, there was compliance. There was non-compliance. <laughs> there were violations of rationing. Uh, violations also when it came to pricing. Uh, also, uh, there was an awful lot of what we call criminal activity taking place, a crime wave. Uh, it, it seemed like some people that got caught up in non-war things were oblivious to the priorities that the war should have been given as far as our nation and Harrisburgers were concerned. So, how, how did rationing work? Well, uh, when it came to rationing, if you're talking about, let's say, gasoline, uh, there'd be sticker codes. And it depended whether you were essential or not essential uh, in terms of how much, you know, gasoline you could get per gallon, you know, per year. Uh, the first sticker was A, and that was non-essential. I think it started at four gallons a week and later on three gallons. Uh, the second sticker was B, that meaning for workers. They got a bit more gasoline. Then you had a C designation for uh, policemen and firemen that were needed for civil defense. Uh, there was an X designation uh, and also, of course, a T designation. But they had, like I said, uh, different allotments depending upon the designation, and that depended upon whether, of course, you were seen as being essential or not essential. Like, I think for the C designation, uh, doctors would get some extra fuel, I guess, to make, you know, calls at homes or get to the hospital or in case there might be an emergency. And there were people who cheated that system? Very much so. Uh, gas station attendants would give more gas than allowed by the ration bucket to maybe favor customers. Uh, you had, uh, in many cases, uh, restaurants getting more sugar than they should have gotten. Wholesale sugar uh, distributors giving out more sugar to favor customers. Uh, but an awful lot of cheating taking place. Did people get there, arrested for that? There were indictments, uh, fines, impossible arrests, and there were some arrests. Because the uh, federal government through the Office of Price Administration, would work through local administrators. And they, of course, would carry out the enforcement. And they, of course, would bring on the police in case there would have to be any, you know, arrests. And like I said, uh, you know, hearings before judges, impossible fines, and also, uh, at the same time, uh, jail time. You mentioned civil defense. What kind of civil defense <clears throat> projects were... Well, there was a concern uh, after Pearl Harbor about uh, a possible uh, air attack on the United States, or maybe parachutists, you know, dropping and committing sabotage and uh, also getting involved in espionage. And right away after Pearl Harbor, 
Uh, even though we had this established prior to Pearl Harbor, more volunteers were asked as far as the air defense system was concerned, you know, to uh, detect oncoming planes and to determine their identification. And, uh, of course, to, you know, take precautions and if they were enemy planes. But right after Pearl Harbor, uh, there were uh, sentries placed on the bridges across the Susquehanna. Uh, the Market Street Bridge and also the Awana um, Street Bridge. And also Sentinels were, you know, placed at Harrisburg Steel, Harrisburg Ireland Steel. I think uh, P, uh, Pennsylvania Power and Light had its own sentries as well. But those kind of precautions, you know, were also taken. But uh, this never was realized, you know. Uh, I, I think it soon dawned you know, upon the people of Harrisburg into late 42 and 43, that Harrisburg wouldn't be subject to any kind of air attack or parachute drops or whatever, you know. But early in the war, they actually sandbagged, and there's a picture in the book, they, they sandbagged City Hall, a, uh, assuming, I guess, there could be bombing raids on the city. And by 1943, those sandbags began to deteriorate, and sand spilled in the streets, so they just, you know, disassembled the whole sandbag uh, protection for City Hall. Were there any sabotage plots that they came up with? No, but there were some imagined and some feared. Uh, for example, uh, you had some um, well, Japanese national come into the United States after Pearl Harbor. And he was picked up by the police. And I guess it was thought that he might be up to, of course, what uh, maybe uh, sabotage, espionage, or whatever. But he was here for legitimate reasons to actually uh, perform at a cafe, so he was released. Uh, later on, some Japanese Americans came in from the West Coast on two occasions. And uh, they were here, they were arrested, but they were here also for legitimate reason and released, uh, they were actually sex checkers of peeps, baby chickens. I never heard of that profession before, but I guess that's a legitimate profession, and I guess they might have had some assignment down in Lancaster County, you know, as far as uh, their particular, you know, assignment was concerned. But were again- there, um, were, were there many Japanese or Asians living in the area? Very the few. There were some, uh, very, a few Filipinos, few Japanese, few Chinese-Americans, but not large numbers, not like you were going to have on the West Coast, not like you have in Washington or Oregon or California, but there were a few. In fact, um, Japanese nationals, German nationals, Romanian nationals were actually rounded up uh, here in Harrisburg uh, after uh, Pearl Harbor. And I know one Japanese... Um, person living in Harrisburg, I think he might have been a Japanese-American, his home was raided, as were homes of German nationals and Romanian nationals. And a lot of documents were taken out. And it seemed like what the FBI was going through when local authorities were actually uh, personal things and family things, like many letters that family had saved that Japanese-American family from relatives in uh, Japan, you know. And it was found there was no subversive material there. And I think many of these folks were eventually, of course, you know, let, let go. But there were also a lot of 
German and Italian nationality people living around here. Mm-hmm. And, and there's the German social clubs and the, the Sons of Italy, things like that. Did they feel any kind of repercussions? Uh, I, I think the German American club on North Street, which is uh, right down from the, I guess the CYO, uh, the Catholic Youth Center right now, which is a very important center for the USO during World War II, where soldiers were actually, you know, entertained in there. Uh, I would imagine they felt uncomfortable. I mentioned the book in about a paragraph that that organization, uh, I think it's translated into uh, the German uh, Boys Corps. Uh, that organization uh, was established in 1867. It's the oldest club in Harrisburg to this date, and they emphasize things of the fatherland. I guess, you know, cultural values, whatever, and uh, flags and banners and history, I mean, things like that. And they kind of calmed that down during the war. And they also membership. So by toning it down, they were allowed to continue in existence. And of course, still around today, that club is still over there, you know, today. The Italian-Americans, through the organizations, went out of their way to demonstrate their loyalty. Uh, by getting involved in scrap drives, uh, raising bonds. Many Italian-Americans, of course, joined the military. But organizations, Italian-American, you know, mindful of the fact that Mussolini was in power, and, of course, Italy, part of the Axis, uh, like I said, made us tremendous efforts to uh, demonstrate loyalty. In fact, there was, during the war itself, Apparently, an effort by some Harrisburgers who doubted Italian loyalty to change the name of Italian Lake to some of the name. Maybe call it uh, Penn Lake or Harris Lake or Columbus Lake or something like that. And that never go off the ground. Never like, so I, I mentioned in the book, I have a piece of Italian Lake. Italian Lake is still Italian, as it is today. You, know. you mentioned the drives that they would do. What kind of drives would, uh, would they do? Bonds. People volunteered to uh, sell and also purchase bonds. Uh, there were scrap drives, uh, mainly metals, but also rubber, uh, rags, clothing, uh, paper. Paper was in great demand. Uh, at the same time, there were blood drives. Uh, blood donations uh, seemed to be slow in Harrisburg. And the blood donor center was very, very disappointed. And all kinds of incentives were put out, like for women with children, uh, some kind of daycare, while women, of course, would give blood, or promises of a couple cups of coffee for each, you know, donation you would make, or maybe stickers you could place on your window to show you're a blood donor. But uh, blood donations, uh, along with, like I mentioned, you know, the scrap drives, uh, and pushes for bonds, you know, uh, you know, come to my readily, you know, as far as drives are concerned. Well, you say in the book, and it's later in the book, that there were some of the drives, like paper drives and blood drives, that fell far short of their goals. Was that something that early in the war people were really gung-ho about and then they kind of uh, faded their interest? I think so. Uh, it, it seemed like it was more enthusiasm uh, in 42 and 43, and then that drop-off occurred. 
where uh, the authorities, you know, indicated that they were very, very disappointed, you know, with, uh, let's say, scrap drives or blood donations in particular. In fact, I have a picture in there of Harrisburg patrolmen coming in a group to give bloods. And I imagine the chief of police, I think his name was Oster Blau, would probably have to prod him to come in, you know, and to give blood. And I would imagine also because uh, you had um, members of the 104th Cavalry, which is a, uh, a unit of the 28th Division, come in as a group and give blood, that they were probably prodded by their officers to do so. But yeah, there, there seemed to be a drop-off. And that was reflected, like I said, in less enthusiasm for some of the drives. With maybe one exception, it seemed like Americans were quite generous when it came to uh, buying bonds. Buying bonds. Quite, of course, there was a payback there, you know. Uh, when you would cash them in, you know, you'd, uh, you'd get, of course, the interest return on the bonds. What were the big factories in the area at the time, and how did they gear up for the war? <clears throat> uh, Harrisburg Steel. Uh, Harrisburg Iron and Coal uh, would come to mind as the uh, major war plants. Now, there were others uh, that were more secondary that uh, might have produced, uh, you know, specialized instruments for the Army, the Navy, or whatever. But, but I would say Harrisburg Steel and also Harrisburg Iron and Steel were the big ones. And Iron and Steel was located down in Shipoka, I believe. Uh, and, of course, Harrisburg Steel uh, off uh, Cameron Street. But uh, they actually uh, were producing uh, shells, from what I understand, and uh, also other precision instruments that were needed by the military. But, you know, shells come to mind as far as Harrisburg Steel is concerned. In fact, there's a photograph in the book that uh, deals with that, you know, showing uh, some of those shells being produced. And uh, at the same time, uh, Harrisburg Steel, uh, among many, you know, war plants in Harrisburg, uh, won some awards for production and also for uh, security, uh, you know, because of an absence of uh, apparently you know, sabotage, espionage, or whatever. But they had more workers, they got federal contracts, they expanded, they stepped up production, uh, in spite of the fact there were accidents, and unfortunately uh, in the steel plants, the railroads, uh, even in homes, uh, a lot of people are dying. In fact, more people are dying in the United States from accidents, believe it, industrial automobile, uh, air accidents, accidents in the home, whatever, they're dying on the battlefields. And interesting story concerning uh, the scrap drive, going back to that, it was found out by uh, Harrisburg City officials that after World War I was over in 1918, some active shells were actually buried uh, in Wildwood Park. And during the scrap drive, uh, the city of Harrisburg sought them out, was trying to find the location. But when they were buried after World War I, the locations uh, were not designated, so they had no idea they were located. And I contacted City Hall, I guess about four weeks ago, and I said, uh, I told them about that, because two articles appeared in, well, one in the Harrisburg Telegraph, the evening news. Do you have any record 
of finding these active shells and diffusing them and, of course, then relocating them, you know. And they haven't gotten back to me yet. The last two people at the Wildwood Center up there, I guess about three years ago, uh, anything about these particular, you know, shells, you know, and they had no knowledge at all. Now, concerns me, at one time, I guess I was a dump up there in a zoo, as well as the wildlife center, but I taught up there at HAC, you know, and I was wondering, you know, could those shells actually still be buried up there? Um, but like I said, uh, that remains a mystery. I'm hoping City Hall gets back to me on that. Maybe I have to contact the police department uh, as far as I was concerned. So they're still active? They could still explode? Well, uh, that's the impression I have. But until I get more information, I'd hate to say that. I just wish I would know if someone located where they were because, like I said, the burial place, you know, was not indicated. They were just apparently buried there and then forgotten about. But I wish, like I said, we'd find out whether it was still there or not. I mean, for the safety of the public, obviously, you know. Why, one more thing, after Pearl Harbor, you speak about Wildwood, there was a zoo up there. I never realized that that Harrisburg had a zoo. And that's one thing about writing this book and doing the research. I'm learning about myself and about my city. And I just feel so ignorant that there's so much I didn't know that now I do know about the city. But getting back to the zoo, after Pearl Harbor, there was talk about killing the animals in the zoo if Harrisburg was subject to an air raid. Because of here the animals might get loose it become a danger to, of course, the public. But that didn't happen. And of course, I think the zoo then closed down sometime after the war was over. At what date, I don't know. Were the factories able to get enough workers? That was all the problem. Uh, there were many problems in Harrisburg. A um, uh, labor shortage was one. And that wasn't just the factories, but uh, labor shortage when it came to the, the city itself. Uh, the city had difficulty maintaining um, ash and trash collection, uh, had difficulty uh, finding lifeguards, uh, you know, for some recreation at Allen Park, uh, had in many cases difficulty filling the ranks of firemen and also policemen. Many policemen eventually were drafted later on in the war, but labor was a general problem. In fact, uh, Harrisburg, uh, was part of the York-Harrisburg-Lancaster Center that had this problem. And Harrisburg was going to, you know, possibly lose uh, a, a designation of a high rating as an industrial center because it just could not get enough laborers, you know, into the factories and into the plants uh, that were needed. In fact, it was a major move in Harrisburg to move workers, move laborers from non-essential to essential industries, of course, essential meaning uh, war industries. For so people working in the factories could have been draft exempt? Uh, they got the ferments, right, yeah. Uh, now, that would be for essential work in factories. They've worked in a hotel or maybe a movie theater, uh, something like that. Uh, you might have difficulty getting the deferment. I want to read something in your book. You're right about some uh, classified ads you found in newspapers, and they say things like um, uh, wanted white girl or woman, uh, wanted second cook, white male, 
uh, experienced white waitress wanted, want, wanted white men for waiters, storeroom and beverage work, Penharris Hotel. And then you, you say, let's see, later in the book, you say, um, labor demands liberalized things, classified ads that had excluded black people changed to calls for white and black people. Mm -hmm. So more job opportunities for African-Americans. That happened, right, yeah. Although there were still complaints on the part of African-Americans about discrimination. And uh, one state officer said, this is not the time to raise the issue. We have to give war priority uh, as a way of saying, you know, you black workers that are complaining, you will have to wait until the war is over. Now, there were, you know, some folks in Harrisburg maintaining that this is always the answer, given the black people. Always the excuse, you know, wait, 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 you know. And one person came and indicated that something better be done about race or there'll be an explosion, you know, between the races. I mean, a lot of racial conflict after the war. Were there opportunities in the military for African-Americans? Uh, yes, uh, military was segregated. Uh, facilities in Harrisburg, uh, when it came to military personnel, were segregated. Uh, like uh, African-Americans had their own um, uh, recreational center, uh, their own USO, as an example. They were separated out of the Indian Town Gap. So you had racial segregation. But yes, blacks were called up, blacks were drafted, and blacks ended up in segregated units uh, in the military. In many cases, uh, they were involved in units that dealt with things menial, uh, like transportation, shipping, uh, loading, unloading vehicles, uh, trains, planes, things like that. And really, you know, not trained for combat. There seemed to be hesitation to train blacks for combat. I mean, putting a gun in hands of black men because there, there are lynchings taking place at this time. You know, racial tensions are high. And actually, of course, Detroit has a major race riot. And there are racial tensions in Harrisburg at this time also. Uh, I know when this was true, even when I was a kid in the 40s and 50s, that it, it seemed like uh, segregation, Jim Crow and Harrisburg lend itself to neighborhoods. I mean, blacks lived in one place, whites in another. And whites stayed out of black neighborhoods, unwelcome there, and blacks would stay, of course, out of the white neighborhoods, you know. And I guess you went into another race's neighborhood at your own risk, you know, uh, because, well, like I said, there was determination to keep things, you know, apart, keep folks apart, observe races. And that's something to me that was oblivious. Even though I lived in that Jim Crow atmosphere, I didn't realize at the time. Uh, and why I didn't, I don't know. I mean, there were a few black students at John Harris, and I played basketball there on the basketball team or whatever, you know. But I never thought about that, that when they go home, they would go home to a separate neighborhood, excluded from, you know, where I go to church or I go to a grocery store or a drugstore or a theater or whatever. I really can't remember when I was a kid downtown coming in contact with blacks. I didn't see them on the streets. I can't recall seeing them in theaters or in the restaurants or whatever. I mean, they might be waiters or 
you know, they might be bellhops or something like that or elevator operators. But like I said, just can't recall, you know, Harrisburg was very, very Jim Crow, uh, blacks had difficulty, in many cases, booking hotel rooms in Harrisburg. I think I mentioned that they were kept off the island beaches. They weren't allowed to try clothes on in some of the clothes stores um, downtown. Uh, so they, like I said, uh, definitely treated like second-class citizens, you know. Would you find women working in factory jobs? Yes. The Rosie the Riveter thing happened in Harrisburg, uh -huh. too? Yeah, very much so. I mean, they pick up the slack because of the labor uh, shortage. And uh, well, I, I indicate that uh, many contributions women make. They were involved in, in giving blood. I mentioned before. They volunteered when they came to the scrap drives. Uh, they also, of course, uh, promoted bond drives. Uh, they, at the same time, gained employment. And many of them joined the military, uh, joined the WACs, joined the WAVES, joined the SPARS, which is the uh, uh, Coast Guard uh, female military. In fact, uh, there are a number of pictures in the book I wanted to cover. I think of WAVES marching, you know, down Harrisburg, coming to Mechanicsburg. But uh, that's an area that I think deserves more explanation and more attention of the uh, great involvement of women in their contributions and sacrifices. What would the roles of the WACs and the WAVES have been in the military? Well, uh, I don't know uh, exactly what they'd be doing in Harrisburg other than, you know, maybe staffing offices in Mechanicsburg or staffing offices at Indiantown Gap. Now, they were, of course, heavily involved in uh, recruiting drives. In fact, I think the book indicates, uh, I have a picture there of a, it might be a P-40 plane and uh, WACs there using the plane to, of course, promote recruitment as far as WACs were concerned. But I think the very presence of women in uniform, whether, of course, it be women in Marines or the Coast Guard, or the wax, you know, or the waves, you know, would, you know, actually, you know, uh, give them more prominence and at the same time uh, some elevation, you know, as far as their war role was concerned. They uh, also uh, were quite involved in uh, bond drives, as I remember. So they were making general contribution, but many, like I said, were actually you know, employed by the federal government, you know, working at the various bases in the surrounding area. Did many women from around Harrisburg go overseas, I guess, nurses? Yeah. And uh, I do mention some. Uh, of course, uh, there could have been, uh, you know, wax and waves overseas. Uh, in particular, I'd like to mention, though, uh, the role of some of the Army nurses, because eventually some of them were assigned to the Philippines and other uh, outposts in the Pacific, and after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor in 1941 that invaded the Philippines, they, of course, uh, couldn't escape. And they were eventually found themselves uh, in captivity. And many were housed in Santo Tomas, which is an old uh, uh, university in Manila, in the Philippines. And it was a big deal in 1944 and 1945 when MacArthur, you know, returned to the Philippines 
and landed at uh, well Leyte in particular, uh, and of course marched on Manila, and the liberation took place. And I have uh, one of those nurses, a John Hines Harris graduate, that was liberated, and also uh, some folks in Harris were giving thanks to make authors forces for the liberation and salvation of their loved ones. But that was, that was a big thing, those folks coming back, in many cases, Army nurses, uh, you know, after liberation of the Philippines. And there were movies that dealt with that, Army nurses, Army nurses in the Philippines, uh, that are mentioned, you know, in the book itself. In the factories, were there, were there many labor disputes? Were like, were there strikes, or was that all kind of there were held strikes. Off? There were strikes during there the war. There were strikes. Yeah, mainly over wages, and uh, I think also union recognition, but primarily wages. Uh, the cost of living, uh, according to what I found out, didn't go above one percent. It's very high during World War One, but I think it might have been. 0.015% cost of living, uh, at least in Harrisburg. Uh, but uh, like I said, strikes over wages, uh, strikes over union, you know, recognition. Uh, Harrisburg Railways, a bus company, had a strike over some issue. I can't recall what it was, or someone I think might have been fired from the bus company and all. That was clearly resolved, but of course, that inconvenienced many people. But if it be any one particular issue, it'd be wages. Were, were the railroads big employers during oh, the war? fantastic, yeah. Uh, made a fantastic contribution. Going in and out of Harrisburg on a constant basis, and uh, they were going hit by labor shortage. And we actually had women being hired in some capacities, uh, the clean-out, for example, some of the uh, dining cars or some of the passenger cars. And here, uh, some African-American women found work as well as Caucasian females. But we actually brought Mexicans in, and they worked the railroads. And then I think I mentioned it before, but uh, when it comes to, you know, hazardous work, I think mining and railroads, oh, very, very dangerous. A lot of accidents taking place as far as the rails were concerned. But yes, uh, they made a tremendous contribution, you know, moving goods in, moving goods out, moving troops in, moving troops out, moving goods through the area, moving troops through the area, made a tremendous contribution. In fact, that's one of the industries that maybe a whole book could be written on, the role of Harrisburg's railroads during, you know, the war itself. And uh, at the same time, uh, the USO, United Service Organization, established uh, at the auspices of some wives of railroad uh, employees a center at the Pensy Station for uh, those soldiers going through. And it's been said that Clark Gable, the actor, had a stake at the Pensy Station. He didn't come into Harrisburg, but he, of course, had a stake at the uh, Pensy Station. And that's one thing I don't want to forget to mention. I'm surprised how the stars descended on Harrisburg, you know, for promotional activity. I mean, you know, selling bonds, visiting uh, the hospitals in the area where you had military personnel as patients, uh, supporting scrap drives, uh, maybe being trained here, 
uh, being assigned here. And I show Abbott and Stella in the book, and they're kind of uh, having fun, playful fun with Art James, who was the Republican governor at the time he came in. But they came at Abbott and Costello for a bond drive. Uh, Count Basie, the band leader, was in to promote bonds. I think he gave a, a concert up at the Zimbo Mosque. And Evelyn Keyes came in later on. I think she came in to visit, uh, you know, some of the patients at local hospitals, or the actress. And I have a whole list of names here I won't get into unless you want to read them, of stars that came to Harrisburg. Edgar Buchanan was here, Joey Brown, uh, let me see, uh, well, others. I'd have to read the list. I won't do that. These people who travel the country raising money uh -huh, for the for yeah. war bonds and things yeah. like that? And we had some casualties. Uh, Carol Lombard, who was married to Clark Gable. Uh, she was on Bond Drive, and uh, she didn't come to Harrisburg, and I don't think she had any intention to, but her plane came down and she was killed. And I understand Clark Gable never get over that. Just never get over that. But she was on a Bond Drive. And I mentioned Glenn Miller. Now, this was abroad, but his plane was lost over in English Channel, the great band leader. And that was a tremendous artistic loss, you know, for us. But yeah, they, they were national in scope, and many stopped off here. In fact, many passed through Harrisburg uh, not, you know, participating in any bond drives or entertainment or visiting hospitals or training. But many of the actors that came in, or Hollywood personnel, uh, were trained up at the Aviation Intelligence School that was located at the old Harrisburg Academy on Front Street in Harrisburg. Well, what effect did the war have on the local schools? Like in the high schools, did all the, all the senior boys disappear? Uh, some of the boys joined up early, and some of the boys left school to work, as well as some of the girls did. But the schools actually mobilized. I mean, you could start elementary level, schools like Lincoln, you know, Forney, you know, Downey, other elementary schools I could mention, their PTAs, the junior high schools, Edison Junior High on the Hill, or Camp Curtin uptown, or the two high schools, again, John Harris on the Hill, or William Penn uptown, along with the Harrisburg Academy, uh, the Catholic schools, uh, Old Catholic High on Market Street, you know, which later became Bishop McDavid. I mean, they mobilized. They made contributions, so they had uh, patriotic programs, they established Red Cross clubs, Bolo Airplane clubs, uh, boys volunteered to be firefighters, but uh, there's a whole array of activity, you know, I could mention as far as they were concerned, and this is also true of, of course, faculty members, administrators, I started my teaching career at Camp Curtin in 1962. And unknown to me at that time, where I taught there for four years, some of my colleagues at Camp Curtin, like a Mr. Black, as one example, or Mr. Patterson, uh, two names that come to mind, were active during World War II and making contributions. Something I didn't realize when I started teaching there in 1962. I then taught 
for three years with John Harris between 1966 and 1969. And some of my colleagues at John Harris were actually, actually involved during World War II in making contributions. Uh, like, uh, for example, uh, the um, principal at that time, Helen Gray, uh, was involved in volunteering. And Spanish teachers, I had a uh, Miss Bailitz and a senior Weller. Uh, Harrisburg at that time was very much in a Latin American kick. Uh, there were Latin American clubs, you know, in the town, Austin High School, Latin American music was in, there were stage shows like in the State Theater. And they were making contributions, which of course I didn't realize, all under the guise of a good neighbor policy. We have to keep these Latins loyal to the United States in a time of, of course, national emergency. But to simplify it, the schools were mobilized, but there was a concern about dropouts and people being, young men being attracted to the military. How old did you have to be to volunteer or well, be drafted? Uh, actually, you're going to find they were taking kids that were 17 years old. And then later on, they were drafting a 17-year-old, or at least accepting 17-year-olds uh, in the Marines. So 17-year-olds, in fact, I think it was the case also in Vietnam until they stopped the practice after the complaints about that during the Vietnam War. Now, but as early as 17. There were a couple of colleges around Harrisburg at the time, your alma mater, Shippensburg, and uh, Dickinson. Did they have a problem losing all their male students? Uh, I didn't get into that, and I don't know. That would require another. Uh, that would require another research effort. I'm pretty sure they mobilized in some way. Now, how it affected you know enrollments in Shippensburg and Dickinson, I don't know. I would assume there would be some kind of an impact there, or for patriotic reasons, you know, uh, young men of draft age would volunteer, particularly right after Pearl Harbor. Now, after Pearl Harbor, you're going to find. Yeah, some of the volunteering dropped off somewhat. But that's a good question, and like I said, I'd have to do research you know, on that to find out more. Did they have civil defense drills, like blackouts or mm -hmm. air raid drills, they did. that kind of thing? They did. And uh, early on, authorities seemed to be satisfied with the blackouts, the brownouts. Um, uh, during some of these air raid drills, uh, if they'd be during the day, folks were expected to take cover. And there were designated buildings in Harrisburg that were seen as being good air raid sailors because they were, uh, well, strong, strongly built. They had strong structures. Uh, some of the department stores were seen as air raid shelters. Uh, buildings on the Capitol complex, uh, some office buildings. Uh, others that could be mentioned, you know, were seen as, like I said, uh, designated air raid shelters. Of course, they also had signs that were luminous, so they'd be identified if you had a drill taking place at night and all the lights went out. But uh, I have a picture in there of uh, the square looking north on 2nd Street, where the square, and what you can see on 2nd Street, is deserted because of a drill taking place. I imagine authorities had to be pleased with because I, I see no people walking about. But you went in a car, you had to park the car, maybe a double park, and get out and seek shelter. On a bus, 
You had to get out and seek shelter because the bus would stop and unload. Now, there were drills at night where all lights had to go off, and uh, a lot of thievery took place. And after a while, uh, of course, store owners started putting locks on doors, and they actually discontinued some of the night drills because of thievery taking place. So there was some non-compliance and some misbehavior, you know, as far as some of those uh, drills are concerned. Now, later on, uh, to save electricity, uh, there were brownouts, which, of course, reduced the amount of electricity. But the uh, brownouts and the blackouts, in many cases, of course, affect street lights. Uh, this, in turn, of course, could cause accidents, so there are problems there. I mean, how to make sure during when traffic was moving, you know, that uh, there weren't accidents and people would be uh, people would be driven killed. There were actually, of course, some accidents taking place because of the excitement, uh, you know, during these drills taking place. But yes, there were air raid drills, and in most cases, had compliance, but in some cases, non-compliance, and of course, unfortunately, in some cases, you know, some criminal activity, and also some accidents. And actually, I think one person actually died from the excitement uh, during one of the drills taking place. Were there examples of people who just weren't going to go along with it? They were just, mm -hmm. they thought this was silly, they were going to leave their lights on? Daylight drills, and I mentioned women kept on hanging their clothes and didn't go inside, you know. So, yeah, a lot of people just ignored it, you know. And, uh, well, I think so many, you know, just like I said, pay no attention, the authorities would have difficulty, you know, catching up and actually apprehending those individuals. Now, some folks were apprehended because uh, when you had nighttime blackouts, some reason or other, there might be, you know, light showing in their house or their business establishment, their bar, or whatever. And these people, you know, received hearings, and in many cases, uh, fines were imposed. You have a picture in your book of some German prisoners of war who were runaways, who were recaptured by Carlisle police. And you say Washington detailed 15,000 German prisoners locally, including in New Cumberland, Indian Town Gap, and Middletown. So there were 15,000 German POWs housed around mm -hmm. Harrisburg? Yeah, including Lebanon. And I think that reflects uh, an effort to offset the labor shortage. In fact, uh, the mayor of Harrisburg, Mayor Mulligan, uh, actually indicated uh, when you had ash and uh, trash uh, men, you know, uh, on a strike, you know, and, and not picking up, you know, the, the waste and everything, that he might bring in prisoners of war. Oh, so they you weren't know. sitting in, in cells all the time. They were out? No, they were actually out. And I think they were probably seen as individuals that very little supervision uh, needed to be given uh, because they would more or less, you know, let be gone on their own behavior. I mean, assuming their behavior, like I said, will be, would be good. And uh, they couldn't have been hardcore. They couldn't have been German SS, or they couldn't have been diehard Nazis. They were probably, you know, young Germans that found themselves caught up in a draft in Germany, went to the battlefield, not having high morale, maybe undertrained, you know, captured early by the Americans. 
and they brought it to the United States, but they helped to offset, like I said, uh, the labor deficiency in the Harrisburg and general central Pennsylvania area. And you that, say, go ahead. And, uh, well, I imagine many Harrisburgers find out about that were unhappy about it. In fact, I mentioned in the book that some Italian-Americans that were involved in some labor detail down at Letterkenny and Chambersburg were invited into Harrisburg homes for dinner. And uh, some veterans organizations very much upset about cuddling, of course, with these prisoners of war. And of course, at the same time, invite him into American homes for dinner and recreation. And there was very much a concern on the part of some Harrisburgers, and one newspaper in particular, and one writer, Noble Frank, that some uh, Harrisburg girls might be attracted to German men and might want to date them, which was taking place in some parts of the United States. Some American girls attracted to uh, German POWs they met. In fact, some of the Italian prisoners of war decided to stay here and actually married, you know, women from the area, and their kin are still here. You know, their kin are still here. Well, you, you know, one line you have in here is as a security measure, police banned false-faced Santas out uh -huh. of fear of the enemy. Uh, I guess there was a fear that people in disguise could actually be you know, involved in sabotage and espionage. And that shows the lengths to which local authorities went. And maybe what I would call the exaggerated, you know, fears they had of, you know, sabotage and also espionage. But maybe understandable if you're living in Harrisburg, right after Pearl Harbor, let's say what the second or third week of December, 1941, in the early 1942. You know, that seemed to be the, not just the Harrisburg psychology, but also the national frame of mind. When the war ended and VE Day and VJ Day happened, what did Harrisburg look like? Well, VE Day was calm and quiet. Uh, the mayor cautioned on that. You know, wait till the war is over. Uh, you know, don't disappoint the parents you know, the people in Harrisburg that have sons in the Pacific, where a vicious war is taking place, high casualties are still coming in. So a very calm, laid-back, you know, celebration of VE Day uh, in May of 1945. But VJ Day, Harrisburg let loose. Paper sprung about, confetti, uh, parades, uh, drinking, taking place, crowds in the streets, uh, no fisticuffs, no brawls, nothing like that. People just celebrated, and like I said, had a good time. Uh, bars closed, liquor stores closed, stores closed, churches had special services, uh, the police had their hands full. Uh, because Harrisburg suffered a crime wave you know, during the war, uh, one can imagine uh, the uproar when it came to VJ Day and, of course, uh, the police, uh, what they had to deal with. Uh, we had the um, shore patrol, the naval police, and the EM police coming in. But uh, I cite my father, who's a Harrisburg policeman, and he was on the street in Harrisburg. 
And I think he makes remark, everyone's breaking the rules, but I also indicate he didn't seem to care because <laughs> what could one policeman do about all these people, you know, celebrating in such an uproarious way? Is this your first book? Yes, it is. What's the experience like? I loved it. Uh, I find right now, after being retired, that I'm much more relaxed. Uh, I don't have to run out of the house every morning and then run back and maybe go back to hack to teach a night class or whatever. I don't have committee responsibilities. But I can do right now really what I feel I was trained for at Penn State doing master's and doctoral work. Uh, to do research and do writing, which they really pushed up there when I was a student up there in the 1960s. So yes, this is my first book, and I have some ideas for book number two. Like I mentioned previously, uh, on Harrisburg in World War I, uh, how Harrisburgers coped with the war, and also the fluenza And I'm thinking about asking the publisher if I could do a pictorial of Harrisburg during World War II. Uh, like uh, Harrisburg remembers uh, World War II images and just show pictures that I couldn't use because the maximum was 80, and I think I have 80 in there of images. They went 30 to 80. I have enough where I think I put another book together. But uh, I have so many ideas also about particular institutions in Harrisburg that uh, deserve books in their own. Like you could write a book on uh, churches in Harrisburg. Like you write a book on the Marcus Square Presbyterian Church, an institution I think going back to maybe prior to the Civil War, or the Pine Street uh, you know, Presbyterian Church, or the Catholic Church. I mean, they all made contribution during the war. Uh, on the schools, or on the Chamber of Commerce, or on the civic clubs, you know, <laughs> the Rotary, or whatever, I mean, the Quota Club, or whatever. But uh, to finish my remarks on this uh, observation here, if I had to write any particular book on any institutions in Harrisburg I was going to focus on, it'd be the theaters. And the theaters enlisted for the war. They showed propaganda films, patriotism, newsreels, shorts, cartoons, well, we'll have to stop there because oh, we're sure out to hear of that. time. We've been speaking with Rodney Ross. He is the author of this book, Harrisburg in World War II. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me. I appreciate that. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.